This is Deep Into History, and I'm your host, Arjun Hundo. Today I'm going to tell you a story about a battle. A battle that spelled the beginning of the end of a war that lasted 100 years. A battle that, though consequential at the time, has cultural influences that affect us to this very day. A struggle so epic that it inspired the immortal bard himself. This tale contains knights in gleaming armor, a mad king, a truly uncivil civil war, and a man who would set the standard for greatness by which all subsequent monarchs would be judged. So take a deep breath, prepare to cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war as we go deep into the year 1415 in the Battle of Agincourt. Welcome to the day chivalry died. We could discuss the root causes of the Hundred Years' War for hours. I'm going to condense it into a nice little nutshell for you so we don't get bogged down in too many names and too many dates. Said nutshell will contain just enough information so you can contextualize the events leading to the Battle of Agincourt. I will drop one name on you though, Eleanor of Aquitaine. She should be familiar to you. She's one of the greatest and most inspiring women in medieval history. She was noble, strong, powerful, beautiful, every inch what you would imagine a great queen should be. When Eleanor married the King of England, she brought with her a colossal dowry in the form of vast lands in France. In fact, after her marriage, the English throne controlled more than half of modern France. Over the years, there were many marriages between the royal families of France and England. Fast forward a century or so, the King of France dies, and you have an English king with a better claim to the French throne than anyone else. See the problem? The French don't want to be ruled by a foreign monarch, so they install their own candidate. England can't tolerate this insult, so war is declared, and so begins what we call the Hundred Years' War. It actually lasted 116 years, but that doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? There are decades of fighting, and the tards of war go back and forth. There are battles all over France, and even where they aren't major battles, there is constant raiding and pillaging. The French peasantry suffers so much and so consistently that where they can, they construct vast cave networks where they can hide when the enemy is spotted, the remnants of which can still be seen today. It is an extremely bloody conflict. There are heroes on both sides. It's a time of knights and the height of the age of chivalry, and France is the very heartland of that way of life. Every knight swears to obey and live by the chivalric code, or the six vows. Vow 1. Fair play, which means you never attack an unarmed foe. Vow 2. Nobility. Obey the law, respect women, and protect the innocent. Vow 3. Valor. Exhibit courage in everything. Avenge the wrong, defend the weak, defend the innocent. Vow 4. Honor. Always keep your word. Avoid deception. Respect life. Vow 5. Courtesy. Exhibit manners. Always be polite. Vow 6. Loyalty. To God, the king, your country, and above all, the code. It sounds like a code everyone should live by. The problem is that most knights only paid lip service to it. In fact, obeying the code was something of a rarity. There were a few true knights in knightly orders, but in essence, knights functioned as the enforcers of feudalism, which itself was in essence a protection racket. Peasants worked the land, craftsmen created tools, and they all played a large portion of what they produced to their local lord in exchange for the lord's protection against foreign invaders, or more often than not, neighboring lords. The lords would then pay a portion of what they received to their counts, counts to dukes, and dukes to the king. Just like not paying your taxes today is considered a crime by your government, in the high middle ages not paying your due was a declaration of war on your local lord. You paid or you died. That's how order was maintained in feudal monarchy. Each lord kept a retinue of knights. In modern times, we tend to think of them in shining armor on quest to rescue Daniel's damsels in distress, or seeking out the Holy Grail. Even shows like Game of Thrones or Nightfall do not quite show you what knights actually were. They were quite simply murder machines, men bred to war since boyhood. 
The sons of knights and nobles would start as pages as young as six years old, where they would learn the chivalric code. After, they would become squires to a knight, where they would learn the care and cleaning of armor and weapons. They would train every day with other squires and receive instruction from their knights. Once a squire was deemed trained and had proven himself in some way, be it loyal service, bravery in battle, or excelling on the tourney field, they would spend the night in prayer and contemplation. In the morning, they would take a knee before their knight and swear to uphold the code. Then the knight would slap him hard across the face and say, May that, that be the last blow you take that goes unanswered. He would rise a knight, the first step on the ladder of nobility. All knights sought advancement to the next step, to become landed knights, with the keep and lands of their own to govern. There was only one way to get there fast, and it was to build a reputation as a warrior. In peacetime, this was done in mealies and jousting tournaments, but this is the Hundred Years' War. France is a literal battlefield. There is near constant fighting, if not against the English, then against each other. To gain a formidable reputation as a warrior, you need to be excellent at one thing, killing. I want to press this upon you. In history, there have been vastly stronger armies than the armies of medieval Europe, but at no time, ever, or ever since, have you had armies where men were literal tanks in plate armor, riding ferocious armored horses, armed with the most brutal weapons mankind had yet come up with, and wielded with incredible expertise. Because if you weren't an expert, you died. There are battles between bands of knights where both sides are made up of men with individual kill counts in the hundreds. And yes, they kept score. Battle was all they knew, killing was what they excelled at, and they loved war. War meant the possibility of capturing men of noble rank who their families would pay huge ransoms to get back. Even low-ranking nobles would bring in large sums of gold and silver, and if, just if, you could slaughter enough of their men-at-arms and capture someone of high rank, it was the medieval equivalent of winning the lottery. Wealth beyond imagining was within your reach if your skills killed. As we approach the year 1415, the Hundred Years' War is in a state of ceasefire, and a very tenuous peace exists between England and France. You see, in the decades before, the French had gone on a long and very successful series of, of offenses. They had taken back most of the country. With the exception of the port of Calais in the north and a small province in the south, the English had been pushed out of France. The French may well have gone on for a final offensive and ended English power on the continent, but they had a problem. The French king, Charles VI, was quite literally insane, called the Mad King for good reason. He had moments of sanity, but would spend the bulk of his time staring into a mirror claiming he was made of glass. He was so terrified that he would shatter that he had metal rods sewn into his clothing, saying it was the only way to keep his body together. The Mad King had a very fat son, Charles VII, but the Dauphin, as the heir to the French throne was known, only liked two things, wine and whores. He was content to let the king's council rule France and run the war as long as he had unlimited money for his constant debauchery. The French nobility was split between two camps, led by the king's brother, Louis, the Duke of Orléans, or the Armagnacs. The other faction was led by the king's cousin John, Duke of Burgundy, called the Burgundians. The Armagnacs and Burgundians despised each other. While fighting the English, they would be in a state of cold war, always weary of each other, Always plotting, always scheming, jockeying for position at court. In periods of peace, their disputes would sometimes erupt into full-blown civil war. There had been assassinations, murders, ambushes, raids, village massacres, and every imaginable atrocity committed by both sides. In the years leading up to 1415, it was the constant infighting combined with the madness of the king that forced the French to make a truce with England, because the more land that the France won, the greater the tension over which side would gain control of it. 
You might be wondering what was stopping one of these sides from announcing their loyalty to the Mad King and the Pudgy Prince of Paris and proclaiming themselves an independent kingdom. The answer to that is one man, who is something of a rarity in France, the son of a commoner who rose to become a marshal of France. Due to his size and his strength, at a young age he was enlisted to be a squire. Through excellence and surpassing bravery on the battlefield, he was knighted. He proved to be invincible in tournaments and a jouster without peer. Once given command of a small band of men, he proved a nightmare for his foes on the battlefield because he was also a tactical genius. He was the deadliest warrior that France ever produced, a brilliant strategist, beloved by the people and if not respected by the nobility, they definitely feared his wrath. He lived and breathed the chivalric code, a true knight who never broke an oath and was absolutely loyal to the king. Jean Lamarne, called Marshal Boussicot, as long as he stood by the king, no one dared make a move against him. Marshal Boussicot commanded the royal forces, and it was only fear of him that kept full-blown civil war from breaking out in France. The Armagnacs and Burgundians continu continued their assassinations and plotting against each other, and as we approach the year 1415, both sides are preparing for the inevitable death of the Mad King. Waiting, biding their time, France is a powder keg that just needed a spark to light its fuse. In England, the situation was slightly more stable. The crown had recently passed to King Henry V. Henry's father had usurped the throne, and as a result, England had just gone through a bloody civil war and a near-catastrophic revolt in Wales. Since the age of 12, Henry had been at war. He lived his life in army camps and on battlefields. He was as at home with common soldiers as he was with royalty. His men loved him. Henry V was no tourney knight. He was a warrior who excelled at his trade. He followed the chivalric code as much as practicality allowed and was also a devout Catholic who truly believed that God was on his side in all things. During the brutal guerrilla-style Welsh revolt, Henry saw the longbow used by the rebels to devastating effect. The Welsh longbowmen had perfected firing their six-foot bows in unison at a tremendous rate of fire. Experienced groups of archers could and did release withering waves of arrows, firing at rates as high as 10 arrows per minute, an incredible speed for the time. Henry had grown up on tales of the great English victories at Crecy and Poitiers, where the longbow placed a decisive role in defeating the French. The Welsh archers, with their astronomical rates of fire, could shred lines of men-at-arms, even those wearing heavy plate armour. He sent an order from the Welsh front that banned all sports except archery and made it mandatory for all males to practice on Sundays. It took time to build the muscles required to continually draw a 120-pound longbow even more time to become accurate. Henry had a plan. England had one-fifth the population of France. They could never match the French with sheer numbers of men-at-arms, so they needed an edge. He envisioned a campaign to take the French throne, which he saw as his birthright. He needed to defeat every French army that they could muster on his march to Paris, so he restructured the English army. Archers now would make three-quarters of his troops, and the remainder would be men-at-arms. Armored knights fighting on foot, or commoners dressed in chainmail. If he could fight on the right terrain, he believed that he could crush any French army sent against him. After subduing the Welsh revolt, he sent a call to every Welsh rebel archer, offering them a contract where they would sign up and receive a set wage for a year at a time. He extended this call to all of England and the nationwide contract system was born. He wanted and got full-time soldiers who through constant drilling and practice together became professional units. They would be his all year and at the end of the contract, if they chose to, they could sign up again at a higher wage due to their experience. This type of contract is still used by militaries around the world today. 
1413, Henry's father dies and he ascends to the English throne, becoming Henry V. He wastes no time and implements his plan. Thanks to his policies, there is a colossal pool of competent archers available for service. Even though the bulk of the army came from the peasantry, recruiting and maintaining troops this way was very expensive. He went to Parliament and informed them of the justice of his cause and his God-given mandate to seize the French throne. It was his destiny to rule and unite the crowns. Parliament voted to create a war tax that would give Henry a massive war chest. Even so, the costs were enormous. He had to train, house, equip, and feed large numbers of men and horses. He also had to construct a massive fleet to get his army across the English Channel. Henry was forced to pawn the crown jewels to complete his preparations. In addition to his archers and foot, Henry added a contingent of siege cannons to breach city walls. This would mark one of the first times that a northern European army would march with such a large number of gunpowder weapons, 12, because they were very expensive. The army and the fleet had gathered at Southampton. Henry was careful to leave garrisons in Wales and on the Scottish border, so England was protected while the army was away. At the age of 25, King Henry V was going to lead a massive army of 12,000 men and nearly 20,000 horses across the English Channel. They had a fleet of over 650 transports and would be escorted by 50 warships for protection. On August 11, 1415, they set sail. Through spies and turncloaks, the French knew they were coming. Concealing the massive preparations would have been impossible anyway. However, no one except a few trusted commanders knew where the fleet was headed. Rumors, mostly planted by Henry, were that the English fleet would follow the Atlantic coast and land in the far south of France. As we shall see, he needn't have bothered with this deception. The mutual suspicion and hatred between the parties in France and the total lack of leadership from the royal family had paralyzed the French into inaction. Henry had decided to attack where no one would expect him. Instead of taking a few easy targets, like lightly defended towns in the interior, Henry had decided to take France's most heavily fortified and important port in Normandy, the bustling and rich town of Harfleur. With massive walls, moats, a heavily fortified gates, a large garrison, and tremendous natural defenses, this was no easy proposition. Yet Henry believed that with his elite cannon force, he could take the town in as little as two weeks, which if achieved would be record speed for the time. To everyone's surprise, the landing was completely unopposed. The warships blockaded the harbor and the army was disembarked with ease. Within days of landing, our floor was fully surrounded and under siege. We can only imagine the deafening man-made thunder of the mass cannons opening fire on the massive battlements. The siege continues after this. I truly hope you're enjoying the podcast. I thought I'd take a minute to ask you for your help. I want to provide fun and vivid podcasts for years to come and I could really use your support. Please go to patreon.com slash deepintohistory to pledge your support. You'll get updates on new episodes and an exclusive Patreon-only mini-episode each week. That's patreon.com slash deepintohistory. Thank you so much. Now, back to the day chivalry died. As soon as the English fleet was sighted, the commander of the Harfleur garrison sent messengers to the south to warn Paris that they would soon be under siege and ask for a relief army to be sent at once. The French response was to send a small supply column to the beleaguered town, but no military aid was forthcoming. After pleas for help from all over Normandy, the royal council was forced to relent and named as the titular head of a relief army a noble trusted by all sides in the person of Charles d'Albray. He was named Constable of France, but the real commander was our true knight, Marshal Buzico. He sent out the call for all the forces the Burgundians and Armagnacs could muster to head to the staging area near Rouen in Normandy. 
just south of Harfleur. Yet besides the royal levies, troops only slowly trickled in. In reaction to this sluggish response, the Oriflamme was sent for. This was the war banner of France, in legend Charlemagne's banner. It was bright red silk with a golden sunburst, and it was carried into battle on a gilded lance. It was only sent for from its home at, in the Abbey of Saint-Denis when there was a foreign army on French soil. It meant that there would be no quarter, and it was the duty of every Frenchman to take up arms. In practice, it meant that there would be a large battle, and after a long truce, the chivalry of France was itching for a fight and the chance for glory and riches that lay on the battlefield. It proved a wise move. The Oriflamme had knights flocking to it. Even the opposing dukes could do little to stop their own men from wanting to fight. With the exception of the Duke of Burgundy and his immediate family, the flower of all the chivalry of France was headed to Rouen. Meanwhile, at Harfleur, the weather was extraordinarily hot, and men could not tolerate being in their armor for long, so it became a matter for the siege cannons. Henry's artillery contingent was one of the first in history to have practiced firing at night. They could maintain operations in the pitch dark, so his siege cannons never stopped firing. It must have been incredibly unnerving to, for the besieged at Harfleur to be surrounded by the explosions from the cannon fire and the thundering impacts from their cannonballs hitting the walls 24 hours a day. The supply column that the French sent was at first captured by the English, then the garrison of Harfleur sallied forth from the town gates and recaptured it, taking in some of the much-needed supplies. There were attempts at attacking the walls directly using siege ladders, but these were repulsed with great losses. The French fought heroically and held the walls against far greater numbers. The skill of the French knights in close combat was second to none. The walls held in the weeks passed. Even though the English had brought supplies with them, Henry had not expected the siege to last for so long. In need of more food, he sent parties to forage for shellfish in the nearby salt marshes. Perhaps it was those crayfish, or the proximity of so many men, horses, and mosquitoes, but by the fourth week the dreaded bloody flux had appeared in the English army. Dysentery, the nightmare of every medieval army, had arrived in force. It caused horrible stomach pain punctuated with bouts of blood-laden diarrhea. More likely than not, the heat coupled with the foul water from all the men and animals defecating in a relatively small area greatly worsened the effects. It soon spread throughout the army, and according to some reports, the town of Harfleur as well. Its effects ravaged the army. Thousands were sick. Though most who got sick lived, they were terribly weakened by their ordeal. The siege was just over a month old when Henry's war engineers came up with a diabolical invention, an incendiary round for a very large cannon the troops called London. It was a modified cannonball filled with combustibles designed to set the area it impacted on fire. After a few volleys, a gateway to the town and the, and the nearby walls were set ablaze. The inferno lasted two days. They had vastly underestimated the new technology's potency. With the outer wall breached, the garrison and townsfolk retreated to a heavily fortified second wall that protected the center of the city. Yet with no sign of any help coming, they had lost heart. Henry sent a message to them saying that he was their rightful king and had no wish to do his subjects further harm. Henry offered them generous terms for their surrender and they accepted. All of the noblemen and knights were to report to Calais in November where they would be ransomed to their families or lords. Then the garrison was allowed to leave, unmolested, and the population was allowed to stay or go if they chose. True to their word, every man who so swore arrived at Calais, as promised. After seizing the town, Henry gave his army eight days to rest and recuperate. Many had died in the tense fighting, many more from the bloody flux. The fleet was used to ferry home any too sick to continue or too wounded from the fighting. Henry would have been doing some quick calculating to figure out his next move. 
The siege had taken five weeks, a very respectable time for a fortified and vigorously defended town to fall, yet he had hoped for two to three weeks at most. The disease had cost the army dearly in suffering and lives. With the 1,500 men he would have to leave to garrison Harfleur, and counting the dead and wounded, the sum total of fighting men he had available was 5,000 archers and 900 men-at-arms. 5,900 men was not enough to march on Paris. He called a war council where their options were discussed. His commanders wanted to take ship home from Harfleur. The capture of a single town, even one as strategically important as Harfleur, would be seen as a wasted effort by Parliament given the ruinous cost of the expedition. If they went home with only Harfleur, there was a good chance that Parliament would never vote to fund another war for Henry ever again. He decided that the army would march to Calais, the other English-held port, symbolically at least claiming the land as his own. But first he challenged his cousin, the Dauphin, to trial by ordeal for the French throne. That's judicial combat. A duel. Contrary to popular belief, most single combat was not to the death. This was different. Judicial combat in chivalric France meant you were asking God to speak through your weapon to vanquish your foe. It was more often than not lethal. More important, it was binding. The duel would be sanctioned by the church, blessed by a priest, and witnessed by many. Henry was a skilled warrior who had taken a longbow arrow to the face at 16 and returned to the battlefield. The Dauphin was so corpulent that he was most famous for getting winded when walking between brothels. If the pudgy prince of Paris accepted, Henry would kill him and become heir to the throne. Always one to disappoint his own people, the Dauphin kept Henry's messenger waiting for days, ignoring the challenge which was a grave dishonor. This was made infinitely more insulting when it became clear that he would send no reply. He was of the blood royal. His honor was France's honor. With the honor of France at stake, knights poured into Marshal Boussacot's camp from all over France, and the size of his army swelled immensely. I'm more than a little suspicious that Henry knew that his fat cousin would refuse and that honor would demand all knights to ride to the defense of the honor of France. But much like the incendiary around for his cannon, he vastly underestimated the effect. He believed God was on his side and his cause was just. Though he only had 5,900 men, most had been in combat together for years fighting in Wales. His army was a well-oiled machine full of professional units of experienced killers, and he was determined to use it. So he did all he could to provoke the French. Marshal Boussico would end up in command of 18,000 anointed knights and thousands more support troops. If Henry V wanted a fight, he was going to get one, outnumbered at least 3 to 1. In order to make the best possible speed, he left his cannon at Harfleur and ordered his men to carry eight days of provisions. He wanted to limit the number of slow carts to essentials like arrows and the royal war chest. In ideal conditions, eight days would be just enough time for the army to complete the journey to Calais. Marshal Boussico was not idle during this time. He was based near Rouen to the south of Harfleur. He was continually adding bands of knights and trying to incorporate them into a cohesive fighting force. No mean feat given the fact that many of the nobles outranked him in the social order and were quick to point out that he came from common stock, though not to his face of course. It was only out of respect and a healthy dose of fear of offending the celebrated warrior that he was a bait at all. By the time his scouts returned and told him that the English army had marched towards Calais, Henry had a two-day lead. Boussico sent bands of knights on fast horses ahead and had them burn and block many bridges. His plan was to drive Henry inland so that the French army could catch up and block the road to Calais in safety. After two days on the march, it became apparent to Henry that many of his men were still sick from the bloody flux. They were forced to cut holes in their pants and endure the de debilitating illness while still marching. 
They neither had the supplies nor the option to stop. The risk of being completely surrounded was far too great. Going back to Harfleur was no longer an option either, as riders coming up from the rear informed Henry that the enemy's vanguard was now behind them. It was on the fourth day that it became apparent to Henry that his army was being pushed inland from the destroyed or hopelessly barricaded bridges they passed. And on the far side of the river Seine, his army was being constantly paced by bands of French knights yelling curses and challenges across the water. Every day the number of French knights seen across the river increased, as did reports of the massive numbers behind them. All knights, the heaviest cavalry anywhere in the world. If they managed to surround the English on an open plain, Henry's army would be annihilated. He ordered that every man was to cut a six-foot length of wood and sharpen both ends and carry the stake with them at all times, thus further adding to the burden of the march. The French numbers were truly shocking and ever-increasing. They were angry, and in addition, every knight wanted to complete the chivalric rite of passage of victory on the battlefield against a foreign invader. The truce had lasted 15 years, so many of the knights had never fought the English. Apart from the tourneys and border skirmishes against bands of fellow knights, they had never fought a set-piece battle. They were all eager for glory, riches, and respect. In many ways, this was a clash between two ways of life. Feudal France, where rank meant everything, and a more merit-based English contract system where peasants could fight beside kings. When the French looked at the English archers, they scoffed. The idea that this army of peasants could ever defeat the flower of French chivalry was simply unthinkable. They knew the tales of defeat at Crecy and Poitiers, and the role the longbow had played, but the lessons that the French nobility took from those horrific losses was that their forefathers had not been chivalrous enough, thus dooming them to defeat. Marshal Boussicot himself was wary of the longbow and knew how effective it could be. He had gone to the king many years before and brought up the idea of creating their own longbow corps recruiting from the peasantry. In a rare moment of clarity, the mad king endorsed the idea. Yet he was forced to abandon it when threatened by revolt from his vassal lords who refused to allow their peasants to take up arms. A large enough armed peasantry could begin to resist the ridiculous burdens that feudalism placed on them. They could become a threat to their lords and the entire social order in France. The only way to maintain a system where it took the year-round work of 20 peasants to support one knight was to keep it impossible for those 20 people to resist. The nobles knew the minute they lost a monopoly on violence, their way of life would cease to exist. As knights regarded the bow as an effete weapon and beneath them, France hired mercenary crossbowmen for ranged weaponry. Though skilled in their craft, the Genoese crossbow took a minute to load, aim, and fire. It had one-third the range of a longbow, about 100 yards, though it packed a tremendous punch at close range, and the small quarrels could penetrate weak points in armor with ease. As his forces tightened the noose around the English, Boussico formulated a battle plan. Once ahead of the English, the main French army would block the road and wait. In medieval strategy, the advantage always went to the side that was defending. In other words, the English, being desperate, would have to attack. His plan was to wait for Henry to advance to the most effective longbow range, about 200 yards. Once this happened, his men-at-arms, knights on foot, would advance and give cover to the crossbowmen that would be interspersed among them. They would use the plate-covered warriors as shields against the arrows. At 100 yards, the Genoese crossbowmen could begin to open fire at Henry's relatively few men-at-arms. With the English archers' attention on the advancing army, Boussico would send in his multitudes of heavy cavalry to attack the flanks and surround the English. This plan was not without merit and could work, but it required discipline and close coordination among what had become a colossal mob of decidedly individualist individuals. It was 10 days into the march and the English army was beginning to starve. 
The burnt bridges had forced them far off course. Henry was forced to send out foraging parties and demand food from any settlement they came across. They mainly subsisted on scraps of dried meat and walnuts which were abundant in the woods. Henry enforced what for the Middle Ages was iron discipline. He regarded the peasants he came across as his subjects. If they did not give supplies out of respect or fear, they were left unmolested. He tolerated absolutely no theft, rape, or unnecessary violence on the march. The same could not be said for the bands of French knights. Had she but known it, Joan of Arc would place this nearly the same prohibitions on the French army when she led it many years later. With the ongoing dysentery and malnutrition, it was a severely weakened and demoralized army that approached the village of Agincourt after 17 days on the march. It was the afternoon of the 24th of October when Henry's scouts rushed back to the vanguard to give Henry the dire news. The road ahead was blocked by a huge French army, far larger than anything Henry had ever dreamed of facing. There were 18,000 knights, 2,000 crossbowmen with other support troops, pages, and thousands of camp followers which would include crafts and tradesmen of every kind, wine and food merchants, and the staple of all armies since the beginning of time, a small army of prostitutes. There was much money to be made catering to knights and noblemen. As the English approached, it would have sounded like they were nearing a huge county fair with music and laughter. The French army was in full celebration. They had won the race and trapped the English. The English would see beautifully embroidered tents with pennants fluttering in the winds. There would be thousands of bright banners and all the battle standards of the chivalry of France. Above them all, the oriflamme, its gold thread sunburst, glittering in the wind. Every Englishman knew what that meant. No quarter would be given. The French had come for blood. There was just a small matter of the disheveled army of filthy peasants to slaughter in the morning, and eternal glory and wealth would be theirs. After all, how could this glorious gathering of the greatest warriors France had ever produced be stopped? Unthinkable. Henry closed the distance to about 1,000 yards and ordered camp to be made. They had no glorious tents and pavilions. For most men it meant finding some wood for a fire and sleeping on the ground, exposed to the elements. As the sun set, Henry ensured guards were posted and he proceeded to study the battlefield as long as the dimming sun allowed. He then moved from campfire to campfire and spoke with his men, giving them encouragement and doing what he could to lift their spirits. Though they had all suffered, they still loved their king and had already followed him several steps into hell. At midnight a steady rain began to fall. Still making his way around the camp, Henry noticed something. The ground was quickly turning into very sticky mud. The more he moved, the more mud clung to his boots, making each step heavier and harder. The soil at Agincourt, and indeed this entire part of France, is very porous, meaning it can absorb and hold an unusual amount of water. If you held some in your hand and added just a little water, it would become thick and very, very sticky. As the night progressed and the rain continued, the field in front of Henry was turning into a hidden quagmire as the soil greedily absorbed the constant drizzle. With the last of the revels dying in the French camp, in the early hours of the morning, I imagine that Henry V cracked a knowing smile as he thanked God in a quick prayer for this unforeseen gift. Traditionally, the battlefield at Agincourt was thought of as a rectangle. However, recent studies of the site show something quite different. It was quite wide where the French were and got steadily more narrow as you approached the English position. On either side of the field, there was a short steep drop into nearly impassable thickets of trees. Even under ideal circumstances, pushing a large number of men and horses down a narrow path creates problems and the conditions at Agincourt were far from ideal. With dawn fast approaching, it was do or die, all or nothing for Henry V and his starving army. 
The Battle of Agincourt begins after this. If you're like me, you can never have enough great podcast content. Since it proved popular last episode, I'm going to continue to make recommendations based on my favorites. This month's Deep Into History podcast shoutout goes to History on Fire by Daniele Boelli. Daniele is a wonderfully well-informed historian who gives life to some of history's most amazing people and moments. His current series is about Joan of Arc and ties in nicely with this episode. If you love history or just entertaining stories, you'll love History on Fire. So please check it out. Now, back to the day chivalry died. At dawn, Marshal Busico formed his huge army into three groups. On both flanks were narrow but very deep ranks of cavalry. The center was formed by thousands upon thousands of men-at-arms with crossbowmen strewn in the forward lines. The fact that Marshal Busico got this many unruly, entitled, and headstrong knights into cohesive lines is something of a minor miracle, and it credits the force of his personality. The army was told to wait for the English to attack in force, and then the infantry was to advance. Once their men-at-arms had engaged the relatively small number of their English counterparts and had the full attention of the English archers, horns would blare, signaling the charge to be sounded, and the heavy French cavalry would race across the field, an unstoppable force of plate-covered men and horse, and utterly smash the English archers on the wings. Across the field, the hungry and freezing English troops stood looking at the glorious and well-fed French in their gleaming armor. The rain had stopped at dawn, and there was a faint mist rising from the ground as the sun periodically broke through the clouds. While the French ponderously formed their lines, Henry had advanced his army until it was 500 yards from the enemy. He placed his 900 men-at-arms in the center and had his archers in a horseshoe formation around them. Now remember the stakes that Henry had made each man cut, six feet long, sharpened on both sides? He had his men hammer them into the ground with their points facing the French army. Very thick rows of stakes protected the archers on the flanks, and very few protected the center. He had a small force protecting the war chest and what few supplies remained to them in the rear. Henry had his men throw curses at the French chivalry, hoping to get them to charge. They threw every insult imaginable at them, and the French knights must have bristled at the front to their honor, but they held their positions. After three hours of standing there, Henry ordered that his gold crown be brought to him and placed atop his armored head as he took his place in the front line at the center of his army. Every French knight now saw the greatest windfall in honor, wealth, and glory standing right there. Any man who killed or captured Henry V would be rich and famous beyond imagining. They must have been itching to charge across the field, yet they held firm. It is a testament to how much fear and respect Marshal Busico commanded that even with the equivalent of a medieval billion-dollar lottery ticket standing there, his men maintained order. Surely frustrated and getting desperate because the English army needed to fight that day while they were still strong enough to fight, Henry dispatched approximately 80 of his best archers forward to maximum longbow range, about 300 yards, and told them to fire at the cavalry on the wings. The drizzle of arrows must have seemed a pathetic ploy and was largely ignored until they began to find gaps in the horse's armor and actually shot a few dead under their riders. The first rank of knights and their mounts manned by the scent of horse blood had taken all they would from these peasants. They charged and before Busico yells for the fools to stop could be heard, the bulk of his cavalry had begun to follow them across the field. The 80 archers ran back to their lines. Henry watched as the first ranks of knights closed the distance, all lances seemingly pointed at his gleaming crown. At 200 yards, he gave the order and 5,000 bowstrings were pulled back. Arrows knocked, aimed, and loosed. Thrum. 
lock, draw, loose, thrum. 10 seconds later, thrum. As he had noted from the night before, the forced horses had already slowed from a gallop to a trot because of the mud and were getting slower when the first 5,000 arrows hit the unruly line. Decimation. Riders and horses became living pincushions. The bodkin points of the arrows did exactly what they were designed to do, penetrate armor. The riders behind would find their mounts tripping over the fallen knights and horses that only seconds before had been charging towards eternal glory. Even those that did not lose their seats to the dead obstacles in their path were themselves pincushioned with arrows 10 seconds later. The inflicted wounds beyond causing grievous harm and death had a secondary effect. Hundreds of gallons of blood was being soaked up by the soil and it was becoming more like quicksand than merely muddy ground. From Busico's vantage atop his mighty warhorse, he would be seeing the impossibly rhythmic rising and falling of 5,000 arrows every 10 seconds, and for the first time, he would understand why his French forefathers had called it an arrow storm. Though there had never been one like this with so many arrows falling so consistently at such a fast rate, concentrated in such a small area. He wouldn't have been able to see the utter decimation the rain of arrows was making of the front ranks of the cavalry. He did know that if he could get his crossbowmen in range, they could give the English a storm of their own. With a blast from his page's warhorn, the deep and numerous center advanced. Within minutes of the wild charge of the cavalry, hundreds of men and horses were dead and dying in the mud, their fluids adding to what was quickly becoming a quagmire. The few that did make it to where Henry stood didn't last long, as Henry's personal guard shot them at point-blank range. All the while, new deadly clouds of arrows were rising and falling. Let's do some quick math. Six arrows a minute is 360 per hour per archer. That means the combined hourly rate of fire for Henry's army was 1.8 million arrows per hour. Arrowstorm, a name so apt I need say no more. The French foot was having an incredibly slow advance. The porous and very sticky mud was creating a suction effect on their smooth plate armor. Every step was more difficult to take than the last. The lightly armored crossbowmen fared better in the mud, but were cut down by the score by each wave of arrows. Hundreds of knights who could not lift their legs to step forward in the quagmire were pushed by the weight of the men behind them, and fell f chest first into the mud. Once down, no one could get up. The suction that the mud created made it impossible to stand. Hundreds slowly suffocated as they sunk down into the mud, only to be used as stepstones for their advancing brothers in arms. Eventually the ranks of the French center did reach the English line. They were exhausted, many with arrows protruding from their armor. Filled with rage, covered with bloody mud, they crashed into the English center. Though the English did have some noblemen and more than a few knights of their own, it was largely plate-armored French knights versus English men-at-arms who were mostly commoners clad in chainmail. Though hungry and tired, the English fought savagely. The knights were getting the worst of it by far. Many could barely lift their arms because of exhaustion and the weight of all the mud. Many more surrendered upon reaching the front. Henry had these men taken to the rear, though he could ill afford the men required to guard them. Within an hour, Henry had 1,200 humiliated prisoners in his rear, guarded by a skeletal force. No matter how many the English slew, the French kept coming. Busico, not knowing exactly what was happening at the front and under extreme pressure from the nobles in his remaining cavalry wing, allowed them to advance. He had no choice as it was a matter of honor for them to go to the aid of their countrymen. Resigned, he decided to lead the charge himself. Chaos ensued. 
The field was bloody quicksand. In places, horses and men would simply sink and become stuck. The added pressure of being pushed from behind forced hundreds more to fall and be pushed down into the depths of the mud. The arrow storm continued, but not for much longer. The English were running out of arrows, and the pressure on the front line had pushed it to its breaking point. Henry and his guard were under constant attack, just as he planned. He put himself out there as bait, and they came for him by the thousands. Henry was a warrior without peer. At one point, Henry was surrounded by five knights, and they cut part of his crown off and badly dented his helm. He was saved by a band of archers, now out of arrows, wielding clubs and daggers. These filthy peasants, as the French derisively called them, were excellent killers. In normal circumstances, the idea that an English archer could fight a French knight in hand-to-hand -hand combat was laughable at best. At Agincourt, however, the knights they fought were exhausted and weighed down. Their movements were slow and sloppy. It proved easy for the nimble and unencumbered archers to avoid the clumsy blows and find glaps in the armor to slide daggers into. In many cases, they simply walked up to a knight stuck up to the waist in mud and dispatched a man who had trained for war since boyhood with a rusted dagger. It was slaughter on a scale no one there had seen before. Other archers began collecting arrows from the slain and returned them to the ranks behind to be fired again. Two hours into the fighting, Marshal Jean Boussicot reached the front line. His horse had died by arrow a hundred yards behind him. Covered in mud and utterly demoralized, he surrendered to King Henry himself. At this precise moment, a column of French knights appeared in the English rear. They were a contingent from Burgundy, who were latecomers to join the army. Not knowing what had happened on the battlefield and eager for ransoms and glory, they charged the baggage train that contained Henry's war chest. Henry was forced to make a decision that would mar his name forever in the annals of French chivalry. In order to defend his rear, the only troops that weren't engaged in heavy fighting were the ones guarding the several thousand noble prisoners. Fearing that the prisoners would rise up and join the last ditch attack on the rear, he ordered the guards to kill them and then go to support the rear guard. To help them do so quickly, he dispatched 500 arrowless archers to help. It was a grisly business. More than 2,000 prisoners were executed by blade or set on fire to burn to death. This was a shocking violation of the chivalric code. However, this brutal decision did prove wise, because once reinforced, his rearguard repulsed the charge of the French knights. The battle was over. The oriflamme, the symbol of French resolve and national unity, lay trodden in the bloody mud, never to be found. The flower of French chivalry lay dead on that field near the village of Agincourt. Against seemingly impossible odds, a new way of warfare had triumphed over an old one. From now on, contract armies of professional soldiers from all classes would be the norm. After the battle, Henry V returned to London and celebrated a virtual triumph. Within five years, after more successful campaigns against a completely demoralized France, he was named heir to the French throne. Though he died from dysentery at age 36 and never got to ascend to his birthright, Henry V was forever after the standard to which English kings were held. France had lost so much of its nobility and ruling class in the battle, but it lost much more. Its self-image was decimated. It took many years and a young peasant girl who heard voices from heaven to rekindle a sense of national pride. I hope you enjoyed The Day Chivalry Died. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps others find the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Deep Into History. Thanks for listening.